0: Our first reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this, is, yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you, have, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Second reading, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you either, would that you either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched pitiful poor blind and naked I counsel you to buy from me refined gold refined by fire so that you may be rich white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I say, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, so I also conquer and sat down with my father on his throne. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Last week, we started a series in this final book of the Bible, Revelation, and um We saw in the introduction that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's the point of this book. And what we're doing today is looking at chapters 2 and 3. And maybe something for us to consider as we think about these verses for a few minutes this morning is this. If Jesus were to write a letter to our church, what would he say? If Jesus were to write a letter to our church, what would he say to us? You know, that's what we see in these next two chapters. Chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters that Jesus spoke to the Apostle John and that John sent to these seven ancient churches that are in present-day Turkey. Now, what we could do is spend a week looking at each of these letters. That would be a very uh, good use of our time. And we might very well do that in a totally separate sermon series at some point in our life together, but we're not going to do that this morning. This morning, we're going to take more of a 30,000-foot approach and seek to summarize uh, the message of Jesus to each of these churches through the Scripture and really the message of Jesus to us. But I would encourage you personally, even today, the Cowboys don't play till 3.30. So after lunch, before lunch, after lunch, before the Cowboys, you're going to have time And a great thing to do on Sunday is to spend time reading the scriptures. So maybe read over Revelation 2 and 3 again and spend some time meditating on that and let the Holy Spirit minister to you in that way. So we're going to take a summarizing approach this morning, but I want you to see at the outset that all of these seven letters are both specific and general. They're general in the sense that they all have basically the same structure. They all begin with a description of Jesus using terms that are found in the vision of chapter 1 that we looked in last week. And then there's a statement of fact about the churches, like in verse two of chapter two, I know your works. And then there's a summons or a command. Usually the command is repent. Then there is an exhortation, something like he who has ears, let him hear. And then finally, there is a promise to the one who conquers or overcomes, I will give yada, 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 right? I will give dot, dot, dot. So we can see that, that pattern and draw some general conclusions about what, is, what God's teaching his people from these chapters. But each letter is also specific. And one thing to get at the very beginning is that Jesus knows in specific and concrete detail what is going on and what the character is of every individual church in the world. There are things in these letters that we as readers 2,000 years later might not even understand the specificity of, but there are some things we do understand. For example, in the last letter to Laodicea, I thought this was cool, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, There's the famous words that Jesus says, you are neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. So I'm going to spit, I've always been offended at that term, by the way, lukewarm. Um, You're mild, how about that? But I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, Laodicea was a very important ancient city in the Roman Empire. And yet one bad thing in Laodicea was the water. It was a well-known fact that the water in Laodicea was undrinkable. Ancients write about that pretty regularly when they're writing about that city. And so the Romans built a six-mile aqueduct from a natural water source all the way into the center part of the city that water flowed through. You can go see the ruins of it still today if you, if you go visit ancient Laodicea. But because the water had to travel six miles, by the time it reached people's homes, it was, guess what, mild We're not going to say lukewarm. It was mild. It was neither hot nor cold. And so that's one example that we see in every one of these letters about Jesus using specific allusions and references to the city and to the church to remind his people that he is with his church. He knows what is going on. He is concerned that we grow more and more faithful as we face opposition from the world and as we suffer in the world. So let's try and summarize all the seven letters to the churches like this this morning Here's the main idea The Lord Jesus calls his church to remain faithful to him in a hostile world That's the main point The Lord Jesus calls his church to remain faithful to him in a hostile world And what I want to do is break these chapters down into three parts We're going to look at two challenges to faithfulness That we see generally in most of the letters And then thirdly we're going to see how to overcome, how to overcome or how to remain faithful. So those are the three points by way of your outline. So let's dive in, okay? First, we see one challenge to faithfulness that we see repeatedly in these letters is that of spiritual dullness, spiritual dullness. For example, look at what Don read about the letter to Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Notice that Jesus commends this church in verse 2 for discerning false teaching. You see that there? He says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So Ephesus is a theologically sensitive congregation. Ephesus is a church that cares about good doctrine. But what does Jesus have against them? We see in verse 4, he says, I have this against you. By the way, you never want Jesus to say that to you brace yourself. Anytime Jesus says, I have this against you. Uh, So we should brace ourselves. That's what I'm trying to say, (laughs) including me. I have this against you, Jesus says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't just mean that they didn't love one another well. And it doesn't just mean that they didn't love God well in general, although it probably means both of those things. What it specifically means is that the Ephesians had lost their love for Jesus in the sense that they were failing to bear witness to him in the world. That's why Jesus chooses to introduce himself in this letter as the one who walks among the golden lampstands in verse 1. Remember we saw last time that the lampstands represent the seven churches. So Jesus is saying, as it were, to Ephesus, I am with you and you're a lampstand. That is, you're, you're supposed to primarily be a light in the world. To a degree, you've abandoned that. You've abandoned your witness to me. So here's the deal with the Ephesians. The Ephesians like doctrine. The Ephesians can detect false teaching, but the mission of God is not evident among them. Their concern for theological accuracy, very, very important though it is, has caused their love for God and for people and for the mission of Jesus to grow cold. And so here's something we need to hear. Spiritual dullness often hides behind the mask of sound doctrine. Now, listen, it's easy for a church like ours, if we can say so honestly about ourselves, to experience this kind of dullness. Some of you are spiritually dull right now. You know your Bibles well. You have read great theologians, perhaps. You can talk theology at the pub on guys' night. Uh, You have a good false teaching radar, but it has ceased to be life-giving to you. How do I know it ceased to be life-giving? Because you are not passionate about people who are far from Jesus. It ceased to be life-giving because you are not sacrificing for the mission of God. You know, if you come to this church and you say, I'm Reformed. You know, part of what Jesus is saying to the Ephesians is, big whoop. What is your theology doing in your life? Good theology is necessary. Good theology is essential. Good theology is a very significant value of ours here in this particular local church. But the point of good theology is to serve the mission of Jesus. The point of good theology is for it to lead us to love those who are not yet followers of Jesus, To lead us, that it would lead us to, to love the world in which we are living, in which we are supposed to be a light. So Jesus is calling us to put our teaching and our knowledge and our insight and our theology to that kind of use. And if we're not doing that, we are falling prey to spiritual dullness. So spiritual dullness shows itself sometimes in an outward concern for doctrine, but an inner atrophy when it comes to caring about Jesus' mission. But there's other ways that spiritual dullness shows up that we see in the letters. Um, For example, in the last letter, in the letter to the the Laodiceans, we can see that spiritual dullness uh, as a challenge to faithfulness can also be seen in a failure to see our own neediness. Look at what Jesus writes to the Laodiceans in verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, bl- I almost said blonde, not blonde, blind. I'm sure blondes are f- very close to Jesus. Go blondes. You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So what Jesus is saying here." And by the way, we see the opposite in the letter to Smyrna. In 2.9, we say, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So another way to detect spiritual dullness and another way that we are challenged in our faithfulness to Jesus is when we fail to see the depth of our own need. You see, the problem in Laodicea is this. The Laodiceans were dangerously competent. the Laodiceans were dangerously provided for. I talked about Laodicea just a second ago, but another cool thing to note about it is that it was a very affluent city. A very significant Roman medical center was based in Laodicea. It was a wealthy trade outpost in the ancient Roman Empire. And in 60 AD, a little bit before John wrote Revelation, an earthquake leveled the entire city. And so the Roman state offered public funds to rebuild the city. But some of the uh, well-to-do movers and shakers in Laodicea got together and said, no, you libertarians are going to love this. No, we don't want your money, state. We're going to rebuild this ourselves." And so they, on their own, raised the money from private capital to rebuild their city, which is one of many examples of how Self-sufficient, how competent, how able the Laodiceans were. And that's why Jesus tells them that is actually leading to you being spiritually dull. It's leading to you not being as faithful to me as you should be. It's leading to you being ineffective in your ministry. So he says, be zealous, verse 19, chapter 3, and repent. Listen, comfortable affluence leads very quickly to spiritual dullness. Now, if that's not applicable to American Christianity, I'm really not sure what is, right? That's about as relevant as you can get. Listen, self-sufficiency, is it not, is one of our culture's highest values. Um, And yet, what Jesus is saying here in part is that it is deadly to faithfulness. It is in many ways anti-gospel. That's why Jesus speaks so strongly here. I want you to think, honestly with yourself, how that sort of spiritual dullness might work in your own life. Now, we might not consciously think, I've got everything I need, I don't need God. In fact, we don't think that way. We're much more subtle and crafty. Um, We do, however, show in the patterns of our day-to-day rhythms and life, if we really are spiritually dull and complacent as a result of our affluence and well-to-do status and self-sufficiency. You know, we might ask ourselves questions like this. Why do I need to trust God when I've got all my bases covered? Why do I need to ask God for my daily bread when I can go to H-E-B or when I own the bakery? Why do I need to pray when I'm feeling pretty good about how things are going right now? And, And really, that gets down to it. If you want to know if your affluence is affecting your faithfulness, the simplest way to find out is to ask yourself how much you pray. And when you do pray, how much joy and intimacy and devotion do you experience as you walk with Jesus in that spiritual discipline? Because prayer is faith expressed verbally. Prayer is the number one way as followers of Jesus we manifest our need. And so the level to which you pray reflects the level to which you are aware of your own dependency. And conversely, the level to which you fail to pray reflects the level to which you think you can go it alone. It's important for American Christians like me to hear what Jesus says to the churches. Because we unwittingly and easily place our life's meaning and purpose in making ourselves successful or comfortable And what we actually do is create a void of hope and joy in our hearts. Some ancient writers and medieval writers have gotten that very well. One person that did it in the 18th century was a guy named Blaise Pascal, who was a philosopher. And at one point he wrote this. I think I've got the quote right up here for you. Listen to what he says. There was once in man a true happiness of which there now remains to him only the mark and empty trace which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate, because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite object. That is to say, only by God himself. So, the letters are Jesus' call for his church to remain faithful to him in a hostile world. One challenge to faithfulness is spiritual dullness, okay? Now, let's look second at a second challenge to faithfulness. And that's found in what I'm calling here stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks. And there are two primary stumbling blocks that we see in the seven letters. First, Jesus warns his church to remain faithful when the stumbling block of false teaching shows up in the church, which it will. You saw that group, the Nicolaitans mentioned multiple times just in what Don read, like in verse 6 of chapter 2 and verse 15 of chapter 2. And then in the letters to Pergamum and Thyatira in 2, 12 through 29, you can see that Jesus rebukes his people there for tolerating, verse 14, the teaching of Balaam, and verse 20, that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. So now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament... You will know that those two names, Balaam and Jezebel, are Old Testament figures that John is drawing on here. So he doesn't name the actual false teachers in these ancient churches. He refers back to anti God figures in the Old Testament. And in doing so, gives his people an understanding of the significance of that sort of false teaching. So maybe a good question is what was the teaching? What was the false teaching of the Nicolaitans or of Balaam? Well, there are multiple options, or probably multiple things. But one thread running through all of the false teaching arising in these churches is this. They taught that it was possible and even desirable for a Christian to worship both God and state. Now, we're going to talk more about that later in Revelation because it's a major theme. Uh, But the bottom line of much of this false teaching was that compromise in the area of worship was acceptable. They would say, it's okay for you to say, Jesus is Lord, but Caesar is also Lord. And Jesus speaks to these churches and says, that is absolutely not okay. Jesus alone is Lord. That's why Balaam is used. Balaam in the Old Testament, especially in Numbers, enticed the people of Israel to defect from the Lord and worship false gods of ancient nation states. So, the idea that compromise in the area of worship, or idolatry is another word to use, was acceptable, was the teaching that was diluting the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ as Lord in these churches. So, that was one of the stumbling blocks. We're going to talk more about that as we move into Revelation. The second stumbling block is very closely connected to the first one. There's false teaching first, and then secondly, there's also false ethics. ethics, Or false living. Notice that Throughout the letters, the false teachers either overlook or positively argue for immorality. And and that false ethic shows up in two main ways, okay? First, in sexual immorality, and secondly, in eating food sacrificed to idols. You especially see that in verse 20 through 24 of chapter 2 in the the letter to Thyatira. Now, the word there for sexual immorality is a word that you might be familiar with, even if you don't know the ancient Greek language. And the word is porneia, from which we get our word pornography. And porneia is what I call a junk drawer term. It, it means many different sorts of things. It was sort of an inclusive term to describe all sorts of sexual deviancy in the ancient world, be it adultery, fornication, pornography, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And listen, church, this is not popular. There's nothing about this that's acceptable in the world today, just as there was nothing about what I'm about to say that was acceptable in the world then, but it's very evident in the Bible that Jesus says that sexual immorality cannot be tolerated or put up with by those who are followers of Jesus. It should not be present in our lives. And if it is present, in our lives, that is a sign that we are sliding towards the godlessness of the culture around us rather than walking with the Spirit. If it is present in our life, then the Lord Jesus Christ here today, this morning, calls you to repent, to turn away from that sin. Now, we are, we are definitely, just like the ancient Roman world, we are definitely broken in this area of our lives. And Jesus, who loves us, who cares for his churches, calls his people to turn away from what we think will bring us life and happiness and flourishing and turn to him who alone can really provide what we're looking for. That's what he says again and again and again, that we must turn from this desire, that we must put these things to death. And if that desire is not there in your life, if you're not putting these things to death, then you should grow in your obedience to Jesus. That's not a popular view, but it is an unquestionable part of the pursuit of holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So one of the stumbling blocks of false living that these people were tolerating and even arguing for was sexual immorality. The second is a little bit more difficult to understand. Food sacrifice to idols. We see that mentioned a couple of times. What's going on there? Well, here's what's going on. If you're like a blue-collar worker in ancient Thyatira or ancient Pergamum, you have to be a part of a guild or a trade union, basically. And when you go to a trade union meeting or a union party, there's all sorts of stuff going on there that was common in the ancient Roman world. There was sexual immorality, there was drunkenness, there was all kinds of stuff happening and each guild had their own little patron deity that they would make a sacrifice to and then eat the remains of the sacrifice at the party. And what some of the false teachers are saying is that it's okay for you if you're a a metal worker, or a carpenter to go to the carpenter union party and worship the God of carpentry, because you know that's not really what's happening. You know that's not the real God. You know Jesus is Lord, but you can go do it anyway. That's fine. And what Jesus says is that is not fine. Jesus says you are abandoning the love that you had at first. You are failing to see me for who I really am, the Lord of the universe. And listen, in those ancient cities, if you refuse to participate in those sorts of normal social and cultural activities, listen, there were economic and social consequences. Do you get that? That's why this is really relevant for us. Listen, we have idols in our culture still. We might not literally sacrifice to them and eat the remnants, but we have them. They're things like success and money and power and approval. And like in ancient Asia Minor, today, if you question these gods, there are social and economic consequences. If you don't play along at work, there are consequences. If you resist and, and if you reject what is seen as normative and good, you can very possibly be cast out. You can lose a job. You can get in real trouble. Listen, this is real. Some of you know that more than others. This happens. And what Jesus is doing is calling you, just like he called the church then, to faithfulness, to pursue doctrinal integrity and holy lives in a hostile world. Friends, listen, this is the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Jesus is saying this. The gospel should be allowed to critique every aspect of your life. Are you allowing the gospel to critique what you do Monday through Friday at work? Are you allowing the gospel to critique what kind of house you live in? Are you allowing the gospel to critique if you're going on a vacation this year? Are you allowing the gospel to critique how much your car payment it is, and whether you should have a car payment? Are you allowing the gospel to critique what you do with your friends when you're hanging out on the weekends? Are you allowing the gospel to critique What your top priorities are. Jesus here is saying the gospel better be able to critique those things. We cannot privatize our faith. We can't say Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. I've got a religious part of me. This is where Jesus is. But then I've got the rest of me, my public life, where work goes and where friendship goes and where hobbies go. And ne'er the twain shall meet. Jesus is not just your personal Lord and Savior. Jesus is the Lord. And because Jesus is the Lord, when you say that, you're not just making a private religious statement. You're making a public, political, socioeconomic statement. Therefore, does the Lordship of Jesus have any impact on what you do when you're not here? If it doesn't, perhaps you're not pursuing the path of faithfulness that Jesus calls you to. That's why Jesus speaks these hard words of love to these churches and why Jesus speaks these hard words of love to us. So those are the challenges. The challenge of spiritual dullness. The challenge of stumbling blocks. Now let me wrap this up real briefly with a third point. How do we overcome? Right? What's the way to overcome? How can we be faithful? How can we fight against the challenges to faithfulness? And if you'll look at every single of the seven letters, John uses this language again and again. Overcome. Conquer. Chapter 2, verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, verse 26. Chapter 3, verse 5, verse 12, verse 21. Now let me say very quickly, in helping us know the way to overcome, two things. Okay, here's how you overcome. First, you look backward, and second, you look forward. Very, That's very preachably, I know. Let me try and work that out, Okay. You look backward. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. At the end of the last letter, Jesus says, The one who conquers, what what do I give him? I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And then listen to this. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What is Jesus saying? He's saying you can conquer and overcome and pursue a life of faithfulness as you seek to follow me, as you remember that I have conquered, as you look backward and see what I have done for you, as you keep Jesus front and center. When you remember that Jesus has overcome, that Jesus has obeyed, that Jesus has pursued faithfulness, that actually empowers us to do the same now. So when you become a Christian, when you decide to, Follow Jesus and make him the Lord of your life when you confess that to be true. You get one of the great things you get is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. And because you have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, he is actually helping you and enabling you and working on you so that you can more and more and more over time, as you remember what Jesus has done, pursue the faithfulness that he's calling us to here. So you look backward, and then secondly, you look forward. At the end of every one of these letters, Jesus offers really pretty remarkable rewards and, and victories to the one who overcomes. Just look at them. Chapter 2, verse 7, to eat of the tree of life. Chapter 2, 10, the crown of life given to us. two, seventeen, hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. Chapter 2, 28, the morning star. Chapter 3, verse 5, that we will be clothed in white garments and our name is written in the book of life and Jesus will confess our name before the Father. Wow. Chapter 3, verse 12, God's name is written on us as a pillar in the temple of God. Chapter 3, verse 21, we will sit on the throne with Jesus and have Jesus open the door of heaven to us. Listen, that should be profoundly moving to you. That should incentivize and motivate you to obedience and to faithfulness. Listen, all of those things are far more satisfying. They're far more glorious. They're far more beautiful. They're far more desirable. They're far more worth it than anything that is causing you to stumble towards faithlessness in this world. Jesus will give you more than you can ask or imagine according to his riches in glory. If Jesus is offering these promises to you, read those promises again this afternoon. Surely that will compel us and propel us outward in faith and in obedience. Look forward. Remember the hope that is set before you and pursue that hope with passion and vigor and repentance and faith. And the last thing, let me say this. Overcoming doesn't mean that you've got it perfect. <laughs> what does it feel like to overcome and to conquer? Well, it feels like wrestling with these very things. It it feels like when you, you feel the pull towards faithlessness, towards the slippery slope, towards a stumbling block, towards spiritual dullness, and you, you're trying to resist it. You're trying to be in God's word. You're trying to pray. You're trying to be with God's people. You're moving forward listen that is god's grace in your life the act of perseverance itself trying to be faithful that is how the holy spirit works these things in your life when you screw up and when you fail what do you do you repent you say jesus i'm sorry forgive me of my sin I'm going to move forward in steadfast hope, relying on your Holy Spirit with God's people around me because I can't do this by myself. That's what it means to overcome. It doesn't mean that tomorrow you're like a spiritual Hulk Hogan who's ripping his shirt off in the middle of the wrestling ring. It means that you're steadfastly, day by day, doing the life of the follower of Jesus. You're living a life of repentance and faith. You're looking backward. You're looking forward. If you're not doing that, if you're not doing that, then that is the life Jesus calls you to. And I want you to know that it's a life where there's hardship, it's a life where there's suffering, but it is the best possible way. So come to Jesus. He is the Lord. Follow him. Be faithful. Overcome. Let's pray.